Please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't have the page number, but you can tell it's really right in the middle, right after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And listen now to our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 17. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. 
The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Deep pause. Leo Tolstoy wrote a, a very famous short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's about a Russian peasant by the name of Pahum. And uh, with a little bit of savings and a little bit of luck, Pahum is able to go from being a, a peasant in Russia to a very small landowner. But no little bit of property is ever enough for Pahum. And he's always looking for ways to you know, sell his tract of land and get a larger tract of land. Well, one day, after hearing about a, a lot of uh, land that's uh, open in uh, one part of Russia, Pechum decides that he's going to sell everything he has, he's going to cash it in, and he's going to travel all the way to this uh, part of Russia with the hope of acquiring just a ton of land. And in this part of Russia, it happened to be led back in the day by sort of a rural tribesmen who themselves had a lot of property and a lot of authority. And one of these tribesmen, really the chief, makes Pechum an offer that he decides that he cannot refuse. So for a thousand rubles, which is basically what Pechum collected from selling the little bit of property he had before, for a thousand rubles, this chief is going to give Pechum all the land that he can navigate, that he can travel, that he can walk around in one single day, all right? So Pechum gets to begin at the, at the break of day, and he gets to set out, and wherever he walks, the circle that he's going to walk is going to be the land that he's going to get at the end of the day. And I don't know exactly how much one can walk in an entire day, but the idea is that this is more land that Pehom could ever have gotten otherwise. But there was one condition, and that's that he has to get back to the starting point when the sun comes down. Now, Pehom is very excited about this, and so he starts walking, and he goes and he goes and he goes, and he recognizes his conscience tells him that it's really time to turn back because... You know, if he, if he doesn't get back, by the time the sun sets, he's going to lose his thousand rubles and he's going to get nothing at all. But the thought creeps into his mind, if I just go a little bit farther, you know, I'm going to have a little bit more land. Now, I don't know, two, three, four, five times it happens that Pechum thinks, I, I should turn back, but I'm going to go a little bit further. Now, it's getting hot. Uh, he's walking, of course, as fast as he possibly can. And eventually, he simply got to turn back. And then it dawns on him, I'm kind of really close. And he starts bolting for the finish line. And he's expended all the energy he has to get all the land he can get. He finally gets to the finish line, which, of course, was a starting line, only to fall down dead. I know, I know. <laughs> and the story ends with these words. His servant picked up his spade and dug a grave long enough for Pechum to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. 
Now, Tolstoy must have read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Each of us, like Pechum, is tempted to chase after something that is going to somehow make our life matter more today than it did yesterday, right? Uh, it was land for Pechum. It may be something else for you. We all want something, but in the end, to give away the end, in the end, our desires, they, they fail us. We all wind up exactly where we began. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Now, in response to this treadmill of an existence, this treadmill of an existence, Christians constantly tell non-Christians they need Jesus. That's our message. It's a great message. They need Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, not only are you unconvinced that you need Jesus, right, you're probably happy looking for meaning or satisfaction or purpose someplace else, right? Telling someone to pursue Christ who doesn't see his need for Christ is a little bit like telling someone to come and eat when he's not hungry at all. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes was written in a spiritual sense to make everyone hungry. That's why this book is here. This book was written to make everyone feel hungry. Now, more accurately, Ecclesiastes was written to teach you all that you've been doing to satisfy yourself, all that you've been doing to give your life meaning has been fooling you. Right? You're like a man who ran all day to win a huge estate only to die with just enough land to bury him. Right? And until you see that, you'll never see Christ. And for those of you who are, who are Christians, which I take that's a lot of you, this is helpful for you understanding better how you came to Christ. What did the Holy Spirit do in your life? What did the Holy Spirit reveal to you so that your heart was softened in such a way that you recognized who Jesus is and what He's done and why you need Him? Now, for most of this fall, we are going to be working through this ancient book. Ecclesiastes, the title of the book, is from the Greek word ekklesia, which is where we get our English word church. It literally means gathering. So this is a book written for the gathering, right? For, a, of course, in this context, it's written for an Israelite, Israelite gathering, right? a Jewish gathering. Now, the author is called the preacher. Uh, he's the one who, who gathered the people together. In fact, if you were to double-click on preacher and look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that would pop up is literally the gatherer, the one who's convened this ecclesia, this congregation, this gathering together. He's the, the gatherer. But of course, what do you call someone who gathers the people together for, for Bible teaching? You call them the preacher. And so preacher is a fine translation. He identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Sounds a lot like Solomon, but an older, wiser Solomon. Whoever the author is, he's seen the world, and he knows a thing or two about the lies told by the world, and he wants to share what he's learned to the ecclesia, to the, the gathering. C.T. Studd famously said, only one life, twill soon be passed, 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, we can learn that from Ecclesiastes. And I pray that our time together loosens our grip on the world and tightens our grip on Christ. Right, that's, where, that's where we're headed. Now, I've got three points. All right, first, the principle. The principle, not like the principal, your buddy at the school, but the principle, right, like the, the standard, like the, like the rule, like the idea, like the theme, the principle, right, the principle, uh, the test, <clears throat> the test, really the testing of the principle, the test, and then third, the call, right, what the text is, is calling us to do as readers, as listeners today. All right, first the principle. Now, here's the principle in one sentence. Here it is. The fleeting nature of life can leave you perplexed and depressed. The fleeting nature of life can leave you perplexed and depressed. Now, I'm taking the principle from the first 11 verses of our passage. Life is fleeting, right? Life is fleeting, right? Translators have struggled with these opening words of verse 2, the ESV, which is our pew Bible, has vanity of vanities, uh, something vain is futile or worthless, the NIV has meaningless, meaningless as a translation for that. The Hebrew word behind vanity is hebel, and it literally means mist or vapor. So mist of mists, vapor of vapors. Verse 2 could then be read that way. And so the preacher is saying that everything is like the morning mist that burns up when the sun comes out. Everything is like the smoke of a burning ember, just sort of flying away, or like a a cloud that, that passes over your house, and you're never ever going to see that, that very cloud ever again. Life is like that. And when he says everything, the preacher includes you, and he includes me. In verse 4, he writes, a generation goes and a generation comes, and that includes our generation, right? So the, the, the greatest generation goes. The baby boomers come, right? Generation X goes. Uh, the millennials come, right? And then the preacher illustrates his point. He's a good, good preacher. He's going to illustrate his point. And verses 5 through 8, he shows how, regardless of what we do or accomplish, life marches on. In verse 5, the sun rises only to set and rise again. In verse 6, the wind blows south and then north, round and round throughout the earth on this never-ending circuit. Verse 7, I love this little picture in verse 7. Streams flow into the seas, and yet the seas never grow full. What's the deal with that? All those rivers flowing into the oceans, and then the ocean never looks different. Right? Nature is just relentless in that way. Life marches on. Kings come and go. Presidents come and go. Nations rise and fall. CEOs get hired and fired. But the earth remains. Have you ever walked along the river and uh, you're looking at the river and you're thinking, I bet the river looked just like that like 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 100 years ago. And did you ever wonder like who were the people walking along the river 100 years ago and who are the people who are going to be walking along the river 100 years from now? I think about that. And I just, it makes me feel awfully small. And the, the fleeting nature of life is supposed to humble us. 
we find the same idea in the New Testament, right? In James chapter 4, verse 14, when James is getting on to his audience for um, always planning for the future, James says, what is your life? For you are a, a mist, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Like, how encouraging is that? Right? But sometimes the point of the Bible is to educate you. It's not always to encourage you. You just need to know that. You know, we're a mist a vapor. And being aware of the finite nature of our life is supposed to put us in our place. In My Fair Lady, Eliza Doolittle channels the principle of Ecclesiastes, but you didn't know that, but she did. She channels the principle of Ecclesiastes when she speaks or sings to her proud friend, Professor Higgins. There'll be spring every year without you. England will still be here without you. There'll be fruit on the tree and a shore by the sea. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. But the preacher says more. He takes this truth to a darker place. Because life marches on, because the sands of time stop for no man, all our contributions to society are insignificant. Now, I have to tell you, if anybody has like an appointment at like 11.40 and you leave this message, that is bad. Like you need to stay for the whole thing, all right? So if you're leaving early, would you please email me later in the week so I can get you caught up to the end? Fair? All right. All right. And if your TV goes out and you're watching online, again, email me later. Right? The preacher takes this idea of the finitude of life to a darker place because life marches on, all our contributions to society are insignificant. And that's the point there of, of verse, verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. My friend, many of your friends, Wayne Elliott, uh, collects long rifles. And one day when I was looking at his long rifle collection, he showed me something else. It wasn't a, a long rifle. But it was made of metal, very small. It had a trigger, but it had no barrel. So it had a trigger like a gun, but it had no barrel. And then on the, on the top of it was this little sort of metal basket kind of thingy, doohickey thingamajig. And he said, well, Aaron, you know, what is this? I'm like, dude, I have no idea what that is. A, a broken gun. Uh, well, it, it's a lighter. You put tinder in the basket squeeze the trigger, there's a little bit of flint there, spark flies up, sets the tinder on fire, and voila, fire, easier way to start you know, your fire back in the prairie days when, you know, anything you could do to make life a little bit easier was kind of a big deal. A lighter. It was new. But not really. I mean, there had been fire before. People knew how to make fires before. It was new, but, but not really. And, and now you don't even know what it is. And I'd never seen it before. It was new one day, but now it's something that I didn't even recognize. It's all the same. Nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. Not really. Great books are written only to be tossed into the dustbin of history. Great tech is created. I'm sorry for all you software engineers or computer folks, but great tech is created only to be replaced by greater tech, probably created by someone other than you. Life goes fast. There's nothing truly new. The more things change, as they say, the more they stay the same. Now, if you think about it, this can leave you a little perplexed and maybe even a little depressed. 
Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It's wearying. It's, I mean, I'm preaching this sermon, and I'm already tired just talking about this. You know, it's just wearying. It's burdensome to realize that, 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 that you are a fleeting, replaceable cog in the machinery of life. I mean, put that on your coffee cup. There's just something wearying about that. And when the preacher says, a man cannot utter it, it's like, whoa, I, I can't say anything. What, what can I say? And you can take it all in with your eyes, right? You can take it all in with your eyes. You can take it all in with your ears. But there's just nothing that's going to satisfy your answer to the question, do you really matter in this fleeting world under the sun? And so you're perplexed, and then you may even get depressed. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. All right, I don't do this very often, but let's try it. Raise your hands if you know your parents' names. Excellent. Okay. Raise your hand if you know your grandparents' names. Okay. Your great-grandparents? Great-great-grandparents? That's depressing. <laughs> right there. I've lost you all. What can I do to secure my legacy? That's what you're all thinking now. <laughs> Here's the principle. The fleeting nature of life can leave you perplexed and depressed. Amy Coney Barrett may be the next Supreme Court justice, but it won't keep her from meeting the end of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's going to happen, regardless of the politics. And so far, I would say the preacher's sermon is a real downer, maybe even mine. But we can take away one thing from this principle. Don't count on tomorrow. Make the most of today. Soon Young and Jonah, you are about to be baptized. We live in a world of people who live for, they live for tomorrow. They live trying to accumulate all they can, trying to gain as much as they can. Uh, they live trying to accomplish as much as they can. That's what I mean by they live for tomorrow. But we're, we're to be a people who live for today in the sense that we recognize tomorrow's not promised. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. You're both young, one younger than the other, but you're both prone to believe the lie that you'll be here forever. And it's just not true. And the Bible knows that inside and out. And so one bit of application from what we've talked about so far is that as you commit your life to Christ publicly, are you ready to live for Christ daily, recognizing that tomorrow is never guaranteed, not just for the Christian, but for anybody. And you can model to the world what it means to live for God by the way you live today. Right, that takes us to our next point. Second, the test. The preacher tests this principle. Is it really true that life is a vapor? I mean, is it, come on. So he's, he's sort of going back in time and describing a moment in his life when he tested this principle. And the answer is, yes, it is true. Right? Nothing in this world can bring you the understanding 
and the joy that you desire. Nothing in this world can bring you the understanding and the joy that you desire. Starting in verse 12, the preacher summarizes his findings. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So that the preacher can confirm the principle of verses 1 through 11 with his own experience. He tested it. He looked for ways to prove whether it's really true that life is a vapor. He looked for meaning and for satisfaction under the sun. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases strength, is sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So, with, with virtually uh, unlimited wealth at his disposal, the king tested his heart, which I take it to mean he's, he's testing this idea that uh, really all of life <clears throat> is a vapor, <clears throat> that there's basically nothing really that matters. He tested this with his own experience. He looked for ways to prove that it wasn't true, that he could find meaning and ultimately satisfaction from life. Look at verse six, 16. I'm sorry, look at verse 3 there. There uh, he mentions, he's talking about what's it going to take for me to get out of bed in the morning? What is it in life? Recognizing that no one's going to remember my name. What is it in life that's going to help me get out of bed in the morning? And in verse 3 he mentions wine. He thought if he could just numb his senses and take the edge off the world, it might seem less pointless, and he might be more comfortable. And so he looked for understanding and joy in a bottle of wine. Now, at other times, he devoted himself to his business, to his occupation. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he thought to himself, if I can just build something, if I can just create something, something that will last, right? A building with my name on it so my great-great-grandkids know who I am, right? If I can just build something that will last, well, that will help me understand and make sense of and even bring joy to my life. Well, he also went through the process of accumulating all the wealth he could possibly accumulate with the hope that having all that stuff would bring him great satisfaction. Now, in verse 7, it talks about having many slaves and in Hebrew history, really indentured servants is probably a better idea. The idea here is that he had a huge staff, a gigantic staff. He had, he had livestock. He had precious metals. He had provinces or lands. He owned many companies. He was the Warren Buffett of Israel. And, and he gave himself to every possible sensual delight. Right, that's how verse 8 ends. Many concubines, and that word there, concubines, is a, is a delicate translation of a difficult Hebrew word 
that very clearly implies that he used women for their bodies. So this man, this king, ran hard to enjoy everything this world had to offer. Verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. But after he had everything that he wanted, it really was his reward. In other words, there was no other reward. He ended up feeling emptier than when he began the process. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I like to tell the the true story of David Foster Wallace, who had a similar experience to the one described by the preacher in Ecclesiastes. David Foster Wallace was one of the most notable American writers of the end of the 20th and the early 21st century. And by his 30s, he had achieved remarkable, remarkable success. He wrote a book that it's been said uh, most people put it on their bookshelves to show that they have it. They don't actually read it. Infinite Jest. Um, He wrote a ton of short stories. He was a sought-after speaker, sort of a philosopher of the ages, but none of it made him happy. And because he was such a a gifted communicator, he would communicate the fact that none of it made him happy. He once put it this way. He said, a lot of my problem is I don't really have a brass ring. And I'm kind of open to suggestions about what one chases. So he'd, he'd achieved so much He'd gotten success, he'd gotten money, but he never found the answer to what he should be chasing after. And a few years later, when he was just 46 years old, he took his own life. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. A striving after wind. Now, what's the preacher telling you here? You can devote yourself to work. You know, go put a little, put a few more hours in. You know, later today, there's no evening service, go for it. Put a little more into work, right? Devote yourself to your wealth. You know, what can you do to just up that, that retirement just a little bit? You know, give yourself to that. Devote yourself to drink, right? If, if drinking takes the edge off of life, you know, a little bit more isn't going to kill you. Devote yourself to sex, right? If sensual pleasure makes you happy, if even for a moment, devote yourself to it. But the preacher says, none of it will finally work. That eventually... Your job that you're committing yourself to right now will eventually come to an end. It's not going to be there forever. Eventually, your wealth is going to be passed on to another generation. Eventually, you're going to wake up with a hangover. Eventually, you're going to realize that a life devoted to sexual gratification is going to leave you empty, broken, and unloved. The wise person, humanly wise, the wise person recognizes the truth of Ecclesiastes 2.11. All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, this is where it gets super interesting. The preacher doesn't stop there. He wants you to realize something else. This is really important because everything that I've said so far could happily be, uh, maybe not everything, but a lot of what I've said so far could be presented on Oprah. 
I know that's disillusioning this far into the sermon. But I'm simply saying a lot of the truth here are truths you hear from those who don't know the Lord. Right? It's happily affirmed by unbelievers. Right? Scores of non-Christians will affirm that there's nothing truly fulfilling, ultimately fulfilling, about devoting yourself to wealth or to work or to sex or to alcohol. So let me give you one example. In the 1990s, uh, I did not look this up, whether or not what I'm about to say is actually true, but I think in the 1990s the most popular program on television was the sitcom Friends. Now this was when three rival networks dominated the airwaves. So to be a star on Thursday night television was to be a star, right? There was no such thing as a YouTube star. You were either a star or not a star. And if you were a star on Friends, you were a star of stars. And in this show, Matthew Perry played Chandler, right? My use of this name is not an endorsement of this television program. In his 20s, Matthew Perry had everything the world had to offer, including a million-dollar-an-episode contract. But behind the scenes, he was a slave to drugs and to alcohol. Now, Perry eventually learned that fame doesn't bring happiness, that he learned that drugs aren't the answer. Well, is it because he came to Christ? Well, no. He just gained a little bit of human wisdom and decided that he'd be a lot better off devoting himself to helping other addicts. And so that's what he did. He devoted himself to helping other people who have been enslaved to alcohol and, and drugs. He helped them get out of it. And he eventually said, that's what brings true happiness, helping others. Right? That's, that's worldly wisdom. Right? He, he knew what the author of Ecclesiastes knew, that sex and alcohol and all that, all those, all those carnal pleasures aren't going to truly fulfill any, anybody. So, did Matthew Perry solve the riddle of the meaning of life? Not according to the preacher, because the preacher's not done. Look at verse 12. So, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. In other words, I looked at it all. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. In other words, so far so good. There is a wisdom in living for others that is not found in living for yourself. He recognizes that after life of, of debauchery. There's a wisdom right? There, there's a foolishness in gluttony. There's a foolishness in licentiousness, right? And yeah, absolutely, what does light have to do with darkness? For a moment, the preacher thought that he'd figured it out, but then reality hit him in the head. Look again at verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Matthew Perry may have beat drug addiction, but he can't beat death. And the last time I checked, and I haven't seen all the episodes of Oprah, I don't know how many were devoted to the reality that one day you will die. 
And the subtext here that the preacher doesn't mention yet is that you will die and you will give an account to God. The foolish drug addict and the wise life coach will both die. And this is the riddle of life. You can imagine the preacher sitting on the side of the river pondering all of this. You mean to say, let me get this straight. I can give up everything, devote my life to the Peace Corps, and I'm still going to wind up in six feet of earth from my head to my toes? Well, how do you think he took that news? Look at verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was very grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after wind. When he realized that in the end, death doesn't distinguish between the good and the bad and the ugly, well, he hated life. Now, I know that some of you have been there. You have had dark moments when you wanted to give up and when life didn't seem worth living. Moments that you wanted, you wanted to disappear. Not the moments to disappear, but you yourself wanted to disappear. There may be some of you feeling this way right now. You still have a hard time getting out of bed. You work to put on a happy face. You have the right answers in your head, but not in your heart. You'd rather disappear. You'd rather go away. You hate life. And the preacher understands you. He's been there. He's looked straight into the eyes of the world and discovered that the secret to life's riddle can't be found in, in helping the poor any more than it can be found in getting rich or getting drunk. And if this is you, if, if you are, are here and feeling helpless, I want you to know there's hope. We find glimmers of hope, even in our own passage this morning, glimmers of hope to the one who gives our life meaning. But to see that, you need to stick with me to the final point. It's why I didn't want any of you to leave yet. That brings us to number three, the call. This passage is fundamentally a call to action. And I'll put it this way. I'll put the call this way. Don't look for understanding and joy under the sun. Look for it in the sun, S-O-N. Don't look for understanding and joy under the sun, comma, look for it in the sun. S-O-N. You should, by the way, read Ecclesiastes in one sitting. The end is glorious, and it points us to the immeasurable riches of knowing God in His Word. But even in these opening chapters, these admittedly dark and gloomy opening chapters, there is a pointer to the light that's to come. One phrase is repeated nearly 30 times throughout the book. It's a phrase we must not ignore. It's the phrase, under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Chapter 1, verse 9. There is nothing new under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. Chapter 2, verse 11. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 17, what is done under the sun was grievous to me. The author of Ecclesiastes was very careful with his words. He wanted us to understand not just five times, but nearly 30 times that he is talking about life under the sun. Why does he keep repeating under the sun? When the preacher says all is vanity, all is vapor, he's talking about a life lived under the sun. 
He's talking about a life lived without consideration of the one who made the Son. That's what life under the Son is, a life without consideration of the one who hung the stars in place. No wonder the man or woman who lives life under the sun is perplexed and depressed. True understanding and true joy cannot be found under the sun. It can't be found in your job. It can't be found in your vacation. It can't be found in your family. It can't be found even in your good deeds. The only way to escape the treadmill of life and the only way to escape the curse of death is to put your hope in the only one who lived a perfect life under the sun. True life and joy can't be found under the sun, but only in the sun, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But you'll never believe that. So I could begin with, you need Jesus, and that would be true. But that, that exhortation to believe in Jesus will never make sense to you until you realize like in your bones that this life under the sun really has nothing lasting to offer you. If you live as if this world is all you have, you will be just like Pechum, who spent an entire day under the sun, only to be killed by his own ambition and greed. And we're all like that. Living our lives on a treadmill which will not stop until we're dead. And before you can get off this treadmill, you will have to realize that there is more than life under the sun. You have to see the futility of living for a little more land, a little more wealth, a little more fame, a little more comfort, a little more acknowledgement, a little more fun or even a little more of making the world a better place because of karma and all that. One of the reasons that you and I were put on this treadmill in the first place is so that we can realize just how pointless the treadmill is, just how pointless life without God really is. Let me put it another way. One of the reasons we all start off under the sun is to realize just how much we need the Son of God. Now, in our passage, God is mentioned just once. It's in chapter 2, verse 13. Or chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Why has God given us this unhappy business? The text is clear. It's been, we've been placed here by God. Why has God given us this unhappy business? Is it so we'll be forever unhappy? I don't think so. It's so we'll realize that He is really what we need. Many centuries after the preacher of Ecclesiastes, there lived another great preacher who also came to Israel. And he also liked to gather people together and deliver them great truths. And one day he gathered a large crowd before him, and Luke records what happened that day. Beginning in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in this crowd made a request of the preacher of Jesus. Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And you said, this would be like you standing up right now and saying, Aaron, I know you're preaching, and this seems really important and all that, but please, would you tell my brother to give me back the money I paid him? What are you talking about? I'm here talking about the kingdom of God, and you're worried about your money. That's what happened. Jesus is, is teaching a large crowd, and someone yells out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You're talking about righteousness. Let me tell you what would be righteous. My brother giving me my share. And that's life under the sun, by the way. That man was stuck on the treadmill. Now, Jesus, of course, saw an opportunity to make a point, and so he decided to tell a story about a rich man who had so much wealth, he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know where to put it, and he finally decided that his best option was to build bigger barns, right? I've got, I've got four cars. What am I going to do? I need a, I need a, I need a four-car garage, that's exactly what this guy, this guy said. I'm going to build bigger barns to put my stuff. And when I do that, when my future is absolutely secure, I'm going to relax, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to drink. Right? That's the story that Jesus told. And then Jesus said that God, at this point, interrupted the man verbally. And God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's the message of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. You're just a mist. You're a vapor. This very day, your life could be taken from you. And, 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 and where would your stuff go? It's just going to go on to the next generation or perhaps to the bank. Everything you accumulate, even your name, will turn to dust. And do you know what Jesus told that man who interrupted his message he said this, be rich toward God. Be rich toward God. Don't try to get rich. Be rich. Be rich toward God. How do you escape life under the sun? Let God be your wealth. Let God be your pleasure. Let God be your security. Let God be your hope. Let God be your treasure. Let God be your comfort. That's what it means to be rich toward God. But how can you have these riches? And how can you have that kind of wealth? There's only one way. You've got to believe that Jesus gave up everything so that you could have everything. You've got to believe Jesus became sin so that you could become righteousness. You've got to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, who had everything the world had to offer, renounced it all, renounced his name, renounced his fame, renounced his glory by taking on human flesh and then dying a criminal's death. Why did God put you on this unhappy treadmill of a planet? So that you would see your need to be rich toward God. I love how the old hymn puts it, Thou about Jesus, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, Becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becomes poor. And that's why I say don't look for understanding, don't look for joy under the sun, look for it in the sun. Right? Only Jesus, who became poor, can make you rich toward God. I know that some of you are struggling. All of you are struggling in some ways. Some of you are struggling in some profound ways. Tired of life. 
don't know what to do, the answer, I mean, this I know, the answer is to be rich toward God. And this requires you to confess your sins against Him, to recognize that you haven't just been running on the treadmill of life, but you've been enjoying it for as much as you can. You need to admit not just your weaknesses, not just your brokenness. You need to admit your unrighteousness and your rebellion and your sin against God. To be rich toward God is to trust that Christ is the Lamb of God who surrendered His life on a cross so that you could have everlasting life. Sun Young and Jonah, you're about to be baptized. Remember, you're a mist. Your life under the sun is short. It's fleeting. But you are also an eternal being, an eternal being who will one day stand before God and give an account for your life, your life under the sun. So whatever you both do, remember those words of C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Don't make this world your home. Be rich toward God. Seek life not under the sun, but in the sun. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we're grateful for the clarity of your word. It's an honest book, a real book, a book that describes our own experiences better than we could ever describe them, and a book that consistently makes the point that in the absence of the God who made us, our lives really are without worth, without value. And so, Father, we pray that by your grace and for your glory, we would very practically know what it looks like to live life in the Son of God and not under the sun. Lord, we pray that you would help us to find our joy and our satisfaction, our understanding in Christ and in Christ alone, that we would behold you, our Maker, as being the one true God and our only hope. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.